Hey there, everyone. Thank you so much for your patience. What you are about to listen to is part one of the long-awaited episode in which I interview historian Matt Siegfried about the history of the United Auto Workers Union in Ypsilanti and the way its presence has changed the landscape of our community, both within labor and beyond. This episode had so much great information in it that we ended up turning it into a two-parter. So listen on for part one, and we'll release part two next week. Who's in charge of Willow Run? That's People wanted to know that because it was a real question. Who's in charge of Willow Run? Ford, the UAW, the workers, the communists? Who's in charge here? The government? <laughs> you know, like we talk about Willow Run and World War II around here all the time. And we don't actually talk about anything that really happened. <laughs> that period is crazy. But I'm a historian, so I have to I have to say what people said. People don't realize that there were real divisions here. That people really fought about this. Probably not put this all in, okay? All right, you're rolling. Hi there. My name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. Today we'll join historian Matt Siegfried as we learn how the UAW-CIO came to Washtenaw County at the end of the Great Depression and through a victory at Ford led the workers at Willow Run during World War II, transforming the social landscape of Ypsilanti and bettering the lives of tens of thousands of people. We will dispel some myths about the arsenal of democracy as we look at the housing crisis, racism, resistance to unions, and the expendable treatment of thousands of workers. We will look at the role of the labor movement, including socialists and communists, in confronting multiple wartime crises. From the rights of women workers to the struggle against segregation, from the fight for housing and services to the campaign to keep open the plant after the war and retain jobs in the community. The activities of those years would shape our region to this day. Matt Siegfried is a historian, writer, and researcher based in Ypsilanti. A graduate of Eastern Michigan University with degrees in history and historic preservation, much of his work has been focused on connecting local history to broad historical moments and trends, with a focus on how race, class, gender, and power impact our social landscape. 
He has given many presentations at the Ypsilanti District Library and is a historian and cultural landscapes expert at the Southeast Michigan Stewardship Coalition, where he works with teachers to integrate place-based learning into curricula. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the role of the UAW in the landscape of Ypsilanti at large and Willow Run specifically. For people who are unfamiliar, where is Willow Run? People may know about the Willow Run High School or the Willow Run Airport or the Willow Run Bomber Plant or the Willow Run Neighborhood. Which of these are we talking about? Well, Willow Run is a stream flowing in the eastern part of Washtenaw County into the Huron River. And it was it's really low land. It's really low land. The Willow Run watershed was the site of a big, big farm, the Quirk Farm, that later was bought by Henry Ford. And so Willow Run is a watershed or a stream. And then lots of names are references to that stream. So Willow Run Airport, Willow Run Housing Development, Willow Run Factory. And then within that, there's specific places. So Willow Lodge would have been the early name of the housing developments there north of Clark Avenue. So Willow just kind of describes a whole series of events (laughs) that begin in 1941, more or less. Immediately before that, the area was owned by Henry Ford and was a working farm that young kids from Detroit would come out and learn farming activities and stuff like that. Uh, Henry Ford was obsessed with making sure that people were both good farmers and factory workers. So before World War II, it's a farming community with big farms. It's a big farming area. There are some orchards and stuff like that, but it's a small farming community with one small school and, you know, a post office. Briefly, there would have been a a rail stop there called Denton at the Denton Road. A small farming community just to the east of Ypsilanti. It did have an identity before Willow Run Factory and all of that as sort of the northeast part of the township. It had its own school and stuff, but it was a farming community identity, very different than the one we think of now. What were labor conditions like in Ypsilanti before the UAW came to town? What was the industrial workforce like in Ypsilanti, specifically in terms of gender and background? How did this compare to Ann Arbor and Detroit? At what point did the automotive industry become part of Ypsilanti's labor narrative, and what role did Henry Ford play in this narrative? Labor relations in Washtenaw County before the CIO came. So the CIO is a movement that begins in the 1930s. It's the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And the CIO is a competitor to the American Federation of Labor, the AFL. So there's the AFL and there's the CIO. The AFL is a craft union federation, which means it's mainly skilled workers. So let's think of plumbers or electricians. And those plumbers or electricians will only organize people with the same skill sets. That's American Federation of Labor. And then the CIO is industrial unionism, which means that you're organizing everybody in an industry. And by industry, I don't just mean factory. So think of the fast food industry, like the whole farm to table. That's the industry. The CIO would try to organize everybody within an industry, irrespective of skill. That's industrial unionism, and it gives people a lot more power, but it also, unlike craft unionism, is necessarily focused on less skilled workers, workers that have been outside of the skilled labor workforce, the craft labor workforce, so women, 
African-Americans, immigrant workers. The CIO is an inclusive organization where the AFL is exclusive. The AFL is excluding on the basis of your craft, which is in America also race and gender. The CIO is inclusive. We want everybody in. We want everybody in. The AFL has a presence here in Washtenaw County. Before World War I, the craft union movement is quite strong in Washtenaw County. It's based on German artisans, cigar makers, uh, butchers, those kind of people. The most important union in Ypsilanti in that period would be the Paper Workers Union, and it would have been where Peninsular Paper is, and that's also where we're going to see the first women as union officers would have been in the Paper Workers Union. Paper Workers Union was a constituent member of Eugene Debs' Socialist Party. If there were socialist votes here in Ypsilanti in 1908, it would have been the Paper Workers Union people, by and large, who voted for it. But I would say that in general, labor relations in Washtenaw County are semi-feudal before the CIO. It is very much a doff your cap at the owner of the factory, who is also your landlord, who is also the editor of the newspaper, who is also the mayor of the town. It's very much a small town in which work is controlled by three or four very prominent families who had been prominent for generations in this town. It's a right to work county. It's an open shop county, which means that unions don't have the right to bargain for all the employees of a place where they're representing. An open shop, well, that's what we have now with right to work state. Uh, open shop is more or less right to work. Washington County was a hotbed of right to work, not a hotbed of unionism. Detroit and Wayne County had fallen to the Democratic Party and the Labor Alliance in the mid-30s. Washtenaw County was a strong holdout of Republican anti-New Deal sentiment. A lot of people will be aware of the 1930s and the kind of New Deal murals on post offices. You don't see that in Washtenaw County. It more or less doesn't happen because this is controlled by Henry Ford and Henry Ford's family and supporters. The auto industry begins in Ypsilanti as soon as the auto industry begins. The auto industry's money comes out of the lumber industry. So once there's no lumber left anymore, you have huge amounts of money to invest, but there's no lumber industry to invest it in. People are using the same infrastructure to extract the lumber from Michigan than to extract coal, iron, and that kind of thing, specifically iron for us. If you look at Detroit, we're halfway between the iron of the Mesabi ranges in Minnesota and the coal ranges of Appalachia. This is where those meet. The lumber barons poured their money into this new industry, it began as a stove industry, believe it or not. And then the stove industry went into the auto industry because they were combining the necessary elements for the auto industry. You've got individual auto capitalists in Ypsilanti. Henry Ford is not here, right? He has competitors here. And it takes a little while for Henry Ford to break into the Ypsilanti market. Throughout the 20s, he's trying to come in here. Henry Ford is the most powerful man in America in the 1920s. Even though there's powerful people here in Ypsilanti with powerful interests, they are not more powerful than Henry Ford. Henry Ford is able to come in in 1929. The factory that we know of opens on Ford Lake now. Ford Lake is also built in that period. That'll open in 1932. By the late 20s, this is a Ford town. People will know Harry Bennett lives here, right? He lives on Gettys. So the chief officers uh, in the Ford Corporation, many of them live in the big mansions up along the Huron River. 
This is considered safe space for Henry Ford and his executives, right? This is their backyard. The CIO is not here. The big explosion in Michigan for the CIO is in December 1937 in Flint, begins the Flint sit-down strikes. By April, May 1937, so a couple of months into the Flint sit-down strikes, there is a wave of sit-down strikes throughout the United States, but especially Michigan, and it goes into every level of society. Everybody from caddies at country clubs to women waitresses, people who had never been involved in labor activity before in the spring of 1937 are involved in labor activity. And especially because it's an industrial union, you have Black and women labor involved. So in Detroit, the great Polish cigar workers strike led by women who have to fight their own craft union and create an industrial union in that process. In Washtenaw County, the first breakthrough for the CIO is African-American laundry workers at Trojan Laundry. And that would be led by a Black man from Ypsilanti named Ben Neely. Ben Neely will become a real hero of the CIO movement here in Washtenaw County. The Trojan Laundry is a real interesting thing because it's a combination of Jewish and African-American laundry workers. It's an offshoot of the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, uh, Textile Workers Union on the East Coast. There's a huge Jewish working class contingent of women in that, and many of the labor leaders of that union were Jewish radicals and labor organizers from the East Coast. And one of those was a man named Sidney Hillman. Sidney Hillman comes out to Washtenaw County. This East Coast Jewish guy hooks up with Ben Neely, Washtenaw County African-American. They organize Trojan Laundry. Sidney Hillman ends up becoming labor secretary in FDR government about 10 years later. So he's a major figure. That's the first time the CIO comes in here is that Trojan Laundry. And then for the UAW, it's American Brooch Company in Ann Arbor, which is exactly where the YMCA is. American Brooch was an auto supply company, largely skilled workers, largely white workers, but non-unionized workers, ex deeply exploited workers. And there's a sit-down strike there. And it's the only sit-down strike I know of in Washtenaw County on an industrial sit-down strike in that 1937 wave, and they win. That's the first time the UAW CIO gets into Washtenaw County is 1937 at American Brooch in Ann Arbor. In Ypsilanti, labor is gendered and racialized and all of that kind of thing. Ypsilanti is a small town, say 12,000 people in the run-up to World War II, dominated politically by the university, just like it is now. Today, it's dominated economically by the university as well. It was not dominated economically then by the university, but it was politically. Economically, because of Ypsilanti's existing large African-American population that goes all the way back before the Civil War, you see some heavy industries locating to Ypsilanti to take advantage of that Black labor. You get early foundry work here on a pretty large scale for a town the size of Ypsilanti because of Black labor here. Central Specialty, which is where Corner Brewery is now, would have seen more Black men working in that than Willow Run during World War II. Central Specialty would have been where generations of Black men worked in the foundry in Ypsilanti. Major, major center of Black social life and work. There were baseball teams connected with it, social halls connected with it. Central Specialty and United Stove actually get the UAW here in 1941 before Ford does. 
in the months before the strike in April 1941 that brings the UAW to board their strikes at United Stove and Central Specialty here in Ypsilanti. Central Specialty will have the first Black men officers of the UAW in Ypsilanti, and that'll be early 1941. The big mass meetings for the UAW here in Ypsilanti were originally held where the Riverside Arts Center is now, so in the Masonic Hall. If you can imagine hundreds of people in there voting on union representation, United Stove actually rejected UAW CIO here. There was a very bitter strike here in Ypsilanti to get this CIO at United Stove. In April of 41, Ford falls to the UAW because Black workers support the UAW. In Chrysler and GM, very small percentage of the workforce is African-American, and the UAW didn't even have to address Black concerns to organize GM and Chrysler. At Ford, African-Americans are 10, 15% of the workforce, including at the most important kind of industrial section at the foundry work. There was no way to organize the UAW at Ford without taking on Black issues and the fight against racism. That was the only way you were going to do it. The UAW, in the process of organizing Ford, realizes that it also has to fight racism in a way that it never had to before. And it has to promote Black leadership if it is going to be able to get into Ford. So you see a real sea change in the UAW. It was always nominally anti-racist, of course. It's a CIO union. But it was forced to organize on an anti-racist basis to be able to organize Ford. And it elevated Black workers to leadership to be able to do that. Those Black workers that had elevated to leadership would go on to become the first Black mayors of towns, would go on to be the first Black congressman. So John Conyers' father, Coleman Young, our first Black mayor in Ypsilanti is John H. Burton, who was on the executive board of Local 600 and an auto worker. They all come from this Black UAW tradition, which is the foundation of Black political power in Michigan. Burton was a major post-war figure in Ypsilanti probably the most important political figure in post-war Ypsilanti history, and he was a UAW organizer. Ypsilanti was led for a generation or two by this coalition we're talking about, this kind of UAW, Democratic Party, NAACP, Urban League coalition that defined Ypsilanti politics for generations. The situation here before Ypsilanti, it's night and day before the UAW and after the UAW. Before the UAW, nobody's in a union. It is a relatively isolated economy. There's the Ford factory, but we're making small parts and stuff like that. After World War II, we get over 60% unionization in Washtenaw County by the end of the 1950s. Washtenaw County is about 13% unionized now. Washtenaw County went from 0% unionization to 60% unionization in 15 years. Something profound happened here, and that unionization was not the old unions. It was not the craft workers. It was the garbage workers. It was the caterers. It was the electrical workers. It was the street sweepers. That's who became members of unions in the post-war period, and it dramatically changed life for everybody here. Everybody here. Washtenaw County was solidly Republican before World War II. It hasn't been Republican since World War II. That's a little bit of the background to give you a sense of how big the change was. Another thing to say about the change is just the numbers. Ypsilanti is around 12,000 people. The township is about 5,000 people before World War II. 
after World War II combined their 50,000 people, right? So within three years, the population of the entire region has tripled without a single new service or a single new house being built. It becomes a real, a real mess during World War II, a real mess during World War II. What was the local reaction like to early labor wins and unionization? The reaction against unionization wasn't just in the 30s. It goes all the way through the 1940s. There is a real conflict within Ypsilanti. Once the UAW comes in in 1941, it's not a done deal. There's a no-strike pledge and there's other issues. So the UAW actually doesn't have control over its own workforce. You've got the UAW, you've got Henry Ford, you've got the local government, and then you've got UAW workers who are doing what they want and organizing on their own basis. So you've got quite a big conflict. Part of the people organizing on the bottom are left-wing activists. So you also have Communist Party activists, Socialist Party activists, any number of labor activists who are also organizing. Willow Rum becomes a hotbed of different left-wing groups, of different left-wing ideas, of different ways of organizing unions and communities. By 1943-1944, what began as a very right-wing conservative community became one of the most left-wing radical communities, working-class communities in the United States, with one of the most radical labor locals in American history. How did these early wins affect organization, especially in Ypsilanti? It brought a couple of African-American leaders to prominence. Ben Neely was the most important one. The CIO's industrial unionism and eventually becomes something like social unionism. You're organizing on the basis, not just of people's interests at work, but at home. All of the life of a working class person outside of where they work is also colored and determined by where they work. Social unionism was the sense that we're going to help you out with your education, with the whole life of a working class person. You see political clubs here. You also see a Black population that was relatively acquiescent over the last 10, 15, 20 years, get more and more active. The National Negro Congress develops in Ypsilanti. The Young Communist League is an overwhelmingly Black organization here in Ypsilanti. It will be led by Leo Rideout, Anna Dennis. The whole leadership is African-American here and young people. You get an opening up of political possibilities. At the same time, in the late 30s, you have an international situation where you have fascism versus communism. You have the civil war in Spain. You have the Russian Revolution. You have fascism in Italy. You have a real crisis and a real moving to radicalism, both on the left and right. Capitalism and the social system is in very deep crisis in the late 30s, and people are looking for ways out of it. Ypsilanti is a conservative town. It's a conservative town, even through this whole period. This is not the Lower East Side of Manhattan. That's not what's happening here. But you do get an organizational change. That's the key. You get a new organization here, and that new organization has never been here before, and it offers possibilities that were never here before. That's the main thing to think of is possibilities open. That's what happens. Possibilities open. It doesn't mean things become radical and great and all of that. It just means possibilities open where they just weren't available in the 1920s in Ypsilanti. What were conditions like for Black people in Ypsilanti? What was Henry Ford's relation to the Black community like at this point? What role did Black workers play in the events of 1941 between Ford and the United Auto Workers? 
I think it's really important to remember that Henry Ford does hire black people to work, men, not women, but that's extremely internally segregated. It's not like you can just get hired into Ford as a black person and work anywhere. We have this Ford plant here in Ypsilanti on Ford Lake. Not a single African-American worked there until World War II. That was open for 20 years in a black community, and there's no black people working there, not a single one. It's very racially divided internally. If you were an immigrant worker from Eastern Europe or Southern Europe and you came to work for Henry Ford, you had to take a class on Americanism, his version of Americanism. You had to sit after work in a class and learn the ABCs of what it meant to be a good American from Henry Ford. If you were Black and you worked for Henry Ford, you had to sign a little thing saying, I won't smoke or drink. I will go to church. I won't join the Communist Party. I won't join a union. It was a feudal system. You're working on Henry Ford's manor. It's not a democratic labor system. He does hire Black people. So if you want to work here in a factory in Detroit, and that's where the jobs are, you have to work for Henry Ford if you're Black. So that means you have to keep your head down if you want that job. You're going to sign those things. There's no other place to work. When the UAW comes in, Black people say to the UAW, well, the two things you need to do is you need to offer us something more than Henry Ford is offering us, because Henry Ford is the only person around here offering us a job. And two, you got to win, because if you don't win, you all can go to Chrysler and GM for a job. We're out of a job. Black people are out of a job. The UAW is deeply strengthened, both politically and organizationally, by its turn to Black workers in the early 1940s. It really strengthens the UAW. The UAW is successful in April 1941. Henry Ford hires through Black churches. So there's a real division in Ypsilanti's Black community between Second Baptist, which is a Henry Ford church. If you want to work for Ford Corporation, you have to be a member of Second Baptist and sign the little pledge saying, I won't be a member of a union and all of that kind of stuff. Brown Chapel AME is pro-union, pro-UAW, and with the Communist Party, like a lot of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in that period. So you've got a real division here between the two main Black preachers, Garth Robertson and Henry Simmons, about the UAW. Right before the great April 1941 epic strike at the Fort Rouge, in which Black workers are going to participate, the most important Black leader in Detroit supporting the UAWs, a man named Reverend Charles A. Hill. And he literally comes to speak at Brown Chapel AME that Sunday before the strike to get Ypsilanti African-Americans to support what is going to happen here in that next week and to support the UAW. They didn't quite know how it was going to happen. What happens is Henry Ford, in an attempt to prevent the UAW from winning at his Rouge Complex in 1941, decides to try to start a race war. Literally, his plan is to have Black non-union workers attack white union picketers on the picket line in the hope that those white unionists will then assault Black workers. The National Guard or military will have to be called in and the strike will be put down. That is Henry Ford's actual plan to end the strike. That's what he was willing to do. Now, to the great credit of the UAW, Those white workers did not react, and the black workers who were part of the UAW went in and pleaded with the black workers who were not part of the UAW to join them in this strike. About a week into the strike, the black workers in the Ford Rouge plant who were not supportive of the UAW decided to walk out and support the UAW, and Henry Ford was done. It was over. The UAW was in town. It would be like the union getting into Amazon today. And not just a little Amazon, like the main Amazon plant, 
Bezos lost. They got not just any union, but the UAW there. That's how big of a transformation it would have been politically for what's happening in the country. Ford's reaction to that, Henry Ford just refuses to hire Black people for the first two years of World War II anywhere. When he opens Willow Run, there's a real labor crisis. We all know he has to go down and get labor. That labor crisis is happening because he's not hiring any Black people in the area. There's labor here to work in the factory. He's just not hiring it. He wants more acquiescent workers. He thinks that these white workers from East Tennessee and East Kentucky are going to be anti-Black, anti-communist, anti-Democrat. They would be Democrats, but conservative Democrats. He wants them to come up here. That's not his first choice. It's his second or third choice, but that's the choice he makes. He tries for a social experiment here in Willow Run, and those Appalachian workers come to Ypsilanti and they get introduced to communism. So by 1944, they're voting for the Communist Party. That's a little bit about race relations here. It's really, really fraught. I don't want to pretend that the UAW is this paragon of anti-racism on the leadership and on the organizing level. They're very conscious about it, but obviously they're organizing masses and masses of people into the union, and there's not critical race consciousness on all of these masses of people. There's also an education within the union about race. Most importantly, I think, though, and I think this is key, the UAW has Black leadership. It's not just that Black people are organizing Black people and white people are organizing white people. If you're a white worker, your committee person will be a black man. There's no way to avoid black leadership when you're a white worker here because the UAW is integrated on a certain level. You're going to have to go to a black person for help. You're going to have to go to the black steward for help. It changes the whole racial dynamic. It changes who has power. The union changes everything. It changes everything. And for black people, it meant that black men with no formal education They become city council people when that would have been impossible. It's inconceivable that a white factory worker would have been on city council, let alone a black factory worker on city council in Ypsilanti before World War II. It's inconceivable. After World War II, factory workers, white, black men and women are in city council. That would have not been possible in 1939. It was possible in 1945. The black leadership around the UAW in the late 30s Their names will be in Michigan politics until the turn of the century. Coleman Young, John Conyers, Sheldon Tappas, these major, major figures in Black Michigan history will be UAW members. What happens is Local 600, which is UAW local for the Fort Rouge complex, becomes the most important civil rights organization in Michigan. When Nelson Mandela comes to Detroit after he's released from prison, he goes to Local 600. That's the first place he goes to thank them for supporting the boycott of South Africa in the 1980s. Local 600, even though there's the Cold War and you're not supposed to support communism like the ANC, the Local 600 insists by the mid-80s because of its Black central leadership, people like Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks works for John Conyers. John Conyers comes out of that Black UAW tradition. Rosa Parks comes out of a union tradition. We forget that about her. She's a very strong supporter of the UAW here. She's in all the protests and marches and stuff like that for the UAW when she's living in Detroit. Local 600 becomes the main civil rights organization in Michigan. In 1967 in the United States, there are only seven majority white towns with black mayors. Three of them are in Michigan. And if I tell you the three towns, you'll go, well, that's the UAW. It's Flint, Saginaw, and Ypsilanti. You get white workers voting for their black committee men. 
white people never voted for black people before because black people never ran before World War II. People didn't have the ability to run for office other than as a black Republican in a black Republican neighborhood. You didn't break out of that. The UAW and the CIO meant that white people were going to vote for black people. It just changed the dynamic. It changed the dynamic. You could get elected in Ypsilanti as a black man, as a UAW organizer, on the basis of both the black vote and the working class vote. That was not possible before in all politics. That was not possible. You can get the sense of that that kind of change, what that means. The first black man ever elected to city council anywhere in Michigan is here in Ypsilanti in April 1945. And it's a man named Frank Seymour, who's the education director of Local 50 and a fellow traveler of the Communist Party. That's the first person finally elected to city council here in Michigan. That's the breakthrough right there. That's the breakthrough. Ypsilanti's reaction to that was to change the city charter, to prevent voting on a ward basis, and to make sure that anybody running for city council had to have three years residency here and was not a renter. Not a renter. What Ypsilanti did in reaction to Frank Seymour, the first Black man get elected, is to try to prevent a Black person ever getting elected again in this town. They changed the city charter to do it. It didn't work because in 1947, there was an election and two black people got elected to city council. It didn't work, but the reaction was to try to prevent it from ever happening again. Henry Ford, part of his reaction to Frank Seymour being elected to Ypsilanti City Council was to refuse to run Willow Run anymore and to walk away from it. Certainly, Ypsilanti white community were freaking out because Frank Seymour was like with Jewish radicals. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is here. Claudia Jones is here. He's not messing about. And there is this period between 1945 and late 47 where the Cold War hasn't totally kicked in and we're all still remembering that we just defeated the Nazis with the Soviet Union as our ally. You had a kind of a space to talk about communism. We didn't have the kind of total Cold War we think of now. The Soviet Union was our allies. The Communist Party was the patriotic party. Henry Ford was the pro-fascist. The Communist Party were the people trying to beat the Nazis. People who were left-wing had a voice and power. Well, the response to that is McCarthyism and the Cold War to shut that down completely. The response to that is a violent suppression of all of the people who made what we're just talking about possible to begin with. Frank Seymour, the people who led the Young Communist League here in Ypsilanti, the African-Americans, will be brought up on charges in the Smith Act for sedition and face 20 years in jail. The people who organized the Ford plant in 1941 will be expelled from the UAW by Walter Ruther for being communists. Literally, the people who made the struggle, who made these anti-racist struggles, who made all of that, because the UAW decides to throw its weight behind the Cold War, it means that you then have to throw your weight behind the Cold War internal. If you're going to fight communism in the Soviet Union, you got to fight it in the UAW. Because Walter Ruther and the UAW and the CIO decided for the Cold War. That I means they had to battle their own people who led the union. You get a expulsion of the radicals who made the union in the late 1940s and early 1950s, and that includes here in Ypsilanti. You go from a very progressive movement to a movement that expels you for raising progressive politics. There was a moment there, 1948, where Henry Wallace, the vice president of FDR, ran as a progressive candidate against the Cold War. He was going to run as a Democrat. The Democratic Party said, no, we want Truman, the right wing. Henry Wallace then ran independently. The vice president is running independently of the Democratic Party. 
and the unions could choose. They could choose the right wing Truman or the left wing pro-union Wallace. They chose Truman because Truman could win. It destroyed 15 years of radical labor organizing, the Cold War. It was a disaster. Regardless of how you feel about the Soviet Union, that's not who the organizers here were. They're Black progressive organizers and women progressive organizers. They're not secret police in charge of gulags. That's how it was phrased. Literally, the most progressive people in America were shut out of union organizing in that period and expelled from the union. Local 600 held on a little bit longer than the rest because it was so strong. Here, Local 50 goes from a relatively conservative election in 1940, the Good for the Union slate, which is the pro-UAW leadership, to 1943, the Communist Party wins in Local 50. The United Bomber Workers slate, Walter Quillico is the head of the union. And then in 1945, the people to the left of the Communist Party win. The Trotskyists, the Socialist Workers Party, the people even to the left of the Communist Party Brendan Sexton is elected in 1945 to the local 50 leadership, and it's called the rank and file slate. And it's led by women and black people. And it rejects the no strike pledge during World War II. It rejects the little steel agreement, which is a wage agreement throughout the United States. And it leads the opposition within the entire CIO to this. The rank and file slate also calls for the nationalization of Willow Run. They wanted to make public buses. Imagine if the largest factory in the United States, instead of becoming Kaiser Frazier and making machine guns and convertibles in the 50s, made public buses. Imagine the direction we would have gone. That's what they were demanding when Ford closed it down. That radicalism of that World War II period is incredibly important. We actually think of World War II as waving your flag Americanism period. Uh -uh. No, 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 no. It was a real period of deep radicalism. For African-American workers, it was the double V, the victory against fascism abroad and fascism at home, against the Nazis and white supremacy at home. That's one way to see this. Wars are often many, many, many different things. World War II is imperial powers dividing the world up among themselves. It's also a war between democracy and fascism. It's all kinds of different wars. For African-Americans here, people had a deep memory of World War I and fighting in World War I and coming back to the red summer of 1919 and the worst racial violence and the real suppression of black and labor rights in the 1920s. People were determined that was not going to happen again. Henry Simmons, the reverend of Brown Chapel AME here, he's a World War I veteran who went through that experience. He went to fight for democracy in France in 1917 and came home to mass lynchings in the United States. That was not going to happen to the next generation. He was committed to that. That was not going to happen. When we think of the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King in the 1950s, who are the people marching? They're the people who went to World War II and came back and expect the democratic rights that they fought for in World War II. That's who the mass base of the civil rights movement is. They went through the experience of World War II, and now they have demands. They're not going back to the way it was before. How do women factor in the events of 1941 between Ford and the United Auto Workers? Our main image of the Willow Run story is of women workers, of course, and there's lots of reasons for that. There's a couple of myths involved in that. The first one is that before World War II, women just weren't in the workforce. 
they were all at home and World War II changed the situation so dramatically that women then got factory jobs for the first time. In fact, the first industrial revolution in the United States, which is textile industry, requires two things, cotton and women's hands. Ypsilanti is well represented in that textile industry. People will know about the underwear factory here and those kinds of things. The largest industrial employers before World War I in Ypsilanti are of women workers. Now, there is a real reaction after World War I. I will say that. After World War I, factories change. Before, there's more piecemeal work. And then after World War I, you get these massive factories with line work and all of that kind of stuff. And you do get less and less women in industry. That is for sure, because of the kind of industry that's being produced. Before World War I, Ypsilanti has 2,100 people working in factories. One third of them will be women. 700 of them will be women. And this has been 1909. I'm sure that was not the case in World War II. But in 1909, it's actually higher than it is during World War II in terms of women in the workforce. I think that's really important to remember that women were part of the industrial workforce and real proletarians, too. We're talking about people who had to sell their labor from town to town. If the factory didn't have work for you, you're out of work. And so you'd have to go to the next town and look for work. And you can't have kids that way. You can't raise a family that way. So if you want to feed yourself, you have to actually divorce yourself from having a family. A lot of the women who were working these jobs, you're young, you live with other women, you don't have children, you sell your labor. For middle-class Ypsilanti, that's how you would view prostitutes. I always think about the division in Ypsilanti between the women at the top of Forest Avenue going to the normal college and the women at the bottom of the Forest Avenue working in those mills. What, 200 yards from the top of Forest Avenue to the bottom of Forest Avenue? And there are two entirely different ideas about what it means to be a woman. On the top of Forest Avenue, you don't even show your wrists, let alone your ankles. You are a paragon of virtue. You are matronly. You're there to go to school to raise the children. All of this kind of stuff. The Madonna and the horse, that's on Forest Avenue in the attitudes of people. You go down Forest Avenue, and we all know what's on the side of the underwear factory is a big picture of a woman in underwear. In the Victorian era, could you imagine a big picture of a woman in underwear on the side of the normal college for all those middle-class women going there? It would be inconceivable. If you're a working-class woman, you're sexualized. If you read the Ypsilanti Press at the time, those boarding houses where working-class mill women were referred to as like the red light district of Ypsilanti. It was not a prostitution racket. So you can imagine the sexual assaults. You can imagine what you had to do to get a job. You can imagine the level of sexual harassment at these places. That's Ypsilanti beforehand with women workers. It is not pleasant at all. There were strikes. There were ad hoc strikes. Unfortunately, the international lady garment workers never got into Ypsilanti. It did get into other towns around here. Grand Rapids, in fact, had mass strikes against sexual harassment by these women in the 19-teens. One of the reasons Ypsilanti doesn't have that is we don't get immigration. Ypsilanti is a, an extremely nativist community. While African-Americans may be tolerated, Italians certainly are not going to be tolerated in this town. At this time, Detroit will be about 40 or 50% foreign-born. Ypsilanti will be less than 5% foreign. The moment America gets mass migration from Eastern and Southern Europe, they don't come to Ypsilanti. 
but they come right next door, even to Ann Arbor. Ypsilanti has a character to it. It's American, Midwestern, and that particular racial dynamic, which sees white and black. It's more complicated than that, but it reminds me very much of a Southern town in some ways, in that sense. Mobile, Alabama's racial division, it's not the Irish versus the Jews. It's black and white, it's black and white. And that's Ypsilanti's history is black and white. What can you tell me about the way that commuting, housing, and workplaces were racialized? Were bedroom communities for workers segregated? Well, absolutely they were. You have the 1930s. So you've got the Great Depression. You don't have any houses being built. You have a real economic crisis with a lot of people out of work. And then you've got World War II. So you've got masses of people moving in the landscape. So not just to work in factories, but to go to army bases. The whole population is moving from one end of the country to the other as you're being deployed into the army or you're looking for work. And there's no planning, obviously, because we don't live in a planned economy. So it's just who can make the most money in this process is how it's done. It's just an absolute cluster of mess ups. And so you've got a situation if you're African-American and you're moving to Michigan to work. I mean, it's not like you can move anywhere. You're not going to move to Gross Point. You can only move to an existing black neighborhood. You're not going to open up a new black neighborhood because that would mean it would be in a white place. And there's only a few existing black neighborhoods in Michigan, Detroit. Ypsilanti, a couple places in Grand Rapids. Now, remember that Black neighborhood is strictly defined. It's not going to grow because if it grew, it would grow into a white neighborhood. It hasn't had a new house built. All of those conditions are relevant. So you've got masses of people moving into a place where there hasn't been a new house built, a new road built. Of course, white people are moving there too. So if you're Black, you can live in Ypsilanti, but you can't work at the Ford plant in Ypsilanti. That's only white people. So you have to drive to the Rouge to work in the foundry at the Rouge if you're African-American. And if you live in Dearborn, you might have to drive to Ypsilanti because the Rouge foundry is all black people. And you're white and you live in Dearborn, you might have to drive to Ypsilanti to work in the Ypsilanti plant because you couldn't work in the plant right next to you because it's all black people. So you get this dichotomy between where people work and where they live. They just don't correspond and they're racially divided. They're racially divided. And this will set up for an absolute explosion this was set up for a real explosion. So in that process, where are you going to build houses? Where are you going to house all of these people? Where you're going to house them is going to determine where black and white people live. It's going to determine where the Democratic Party wins and where the Republican Party wins. You're going to change the political character of places. What you see is Republican Washington County saying, oh, no, 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 no. They could work here. They cannot live here. No way. Because if they live here, they'll vote for somebody we don't like. And also, you'll lower the property values. And so you get an absolute resistance on the part of Henry Ford, the local real estate developers, and the local politicians to any new housing here in Ypsilanti, because that would upset the political balance. We think of World War II and we have the Rosie, the Riveters, and oh, they were the essential workers. Yeah, just like the essential workers now, just like we treat the essential workers now, utterly expendable, utterly expendable. The labor is essential. The workers are expendable. I think that's the key to remember. 
the essential worker is the grocery store worker. That person themselves is utterly expendable. That is the attitude towards the Willow Run workers. They are essential workers who, as individuals, are utterly expendable. We'll just go through them like nothing. The labor conditions at Willow Run are terrible. For every person walking in the front door, three people are walking out the back door. You can't keep people in that job because conditions are so terrible. It was called Will It Run, not Willow Run, Will It Run, because conditions were so terrible, they couldn't get the production up and running. Henry Ford had never made a plane before. This is his first time making planes, and he's making B-52s for the U.S. government. Oftentimes, they would have to be returned because they just didn't work. We just have a very different view of that reality. That division about where people are living and all of that, that becomes a crisis that has to be solved. It has to be solved during World War II. Finally, you get the federal government, because that's the only people who are going to do this. Real estate developers are not going to make a profit on this, so they're not going to do it. So the federal government steps in. And the federal government will create housing. People aren't provided housing. That doesn't mean people aren't living around here. So they're living in camps. They're living in trailers. I was looking at some aerial photographs of the early 1940s. And all north of us in that superior township and that beautiful nature reserves and stuff up there, those fields were full of trailers, of people living in trailers. So people are working in the most technologically advanced plant that ever had been produced by human hands. And they don't have running water. Finally, the UAW and other groups get the federal government to agree to create housing for people, but they're going to do it on a racial basis. We've never had public housing in Ypsilanti before because we had all the anti-New Deal people here. When they do put public housing here for the first time, even though we don't have official segregation or Jim Crow in Ypsilanti, and in fact, by the 1886 Supreme Court decision of the state of Michigan, we're not supposed to have any segregation in housing or public accommodations. And so even though it's against Michigan law, federal housing is made for all white people there. We had de facto Jim Crow up here. They're going to impose Southern style Jim Crow up here now, a step backwards from what we've had. There's major resistance to that. The first demand of Black people in the UAW is absolutely no segregation in housing, zero segregation in housing. They do not win that. The compromise is to create Park Ridge community housing on the South Side. The Black community at the time rejected that. We are fighting a war against fascism. We have been demonstrating for the last three years to integrate war industries and to get Black women jobs, and you're going to accept Black-only housing? There was a real division in the Black community between those who accepted Park Ridge on the South Side and Park Ridge Community Center on the South Side and those who said, absolutely not. It should be on Michigan Avenue. That way it will be for everybody. And that way you will not be able to take resources from it. Because we know if this is Black only, you will take resources from it. It will be starved of resources. So the only way for Black people to have full access to resources was to go to your school to go to your community center, to go to the places that you expected to have those resources. If you divide it, we know it will be starved of resources. So the first demand of Black Ypsilanti and Southeast Michigan was absolutely no Park Ridge Community Center, absolutely no Park Ridge homes. We want to live in Willow Run. We want to live there. And there are vicious editorials in the Michigan Chronicle and Michigan Citizen attacking Ypsilanti for accepting that. Black militants in Southeast Michigan really attacked Black Ypsilanti because they accepted that. We're fighting through the entire country against segregation and housing. 
and you accept this in a place that the whole country is looking at? Because all the country is looking at Willow Run. It is the center of Black politics during World War II. Every Black newspaper across the country is reporting on what happens in Willow Run. Ypsilanti African-Americans accepting segregation. People were not happy because it was like scabbing on our struggle around the country. You're crossing a picket line here. Don't accept that. Don't accept that. When finally Black women are going to be hired into Willow Run, and this is late 1942, on a year and a half after campaigning, Henry Ford goes to Detroit and he says, we'll hire six women. And those six Black women are told that they're going to be janitors and they all refuse. And so he comes to Ypsilanti and those Black women accept it. They accept it. And so Black women from Detroit come to Ypsilanti and say, no, 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 no. We're having to sit down. We all only accept full, equal participation in this. If you do that, you're crossing the picket line. We only accept going on the factory floor as equals. We're not going to be janitors. Ypsilanti's population is real divided. You see a real generational division here in Ypsilanti between young Black Ypsilanti and older Black Ypsilanti. The same is true in the white community. The older white community came up in the most reactionary 1920s and all of that. And the younger community came up in the period of the Spanish Civil War and this. Even young white people are flocking to radicalism in this period. Of course they are. You get a real generational division along with your racial, class, gender divisions here as well. It's very complicated. That's the end of the first part of our interview with Matt Siegfried about the United Auto Workers and Willow Run. Make sure to listen in next week when part two of this episode drops. A special thank you to Sam Killian for all his work on the Ipsy Stories webpage. We couldn't do it without you, Sam. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I l-i-b-r-a-r-y dot o-r-g thanks for listening and see you next time